With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This one is gone! It hits the foul pole! Howie Kendrick has done it again! And here it comes. Swing and a miss! Swing and a miss! And a World Series Game 7 winning Curly W is in the books! Hi everyone, I'm Charlie Slows. And I'm Dave Jagler. And welcome to Curly W Live from the Booth. Every episode, we talk about some of the greatest games and moments in Nationals history with insights from our broadcast, both on and off the air. We'll also answer some of your questions if you send them to us at nationalsradio at nationals.com or reach out to us with a direct message at, at Nats Radio on Twitter, and we'll answer your questions at the end of every episode. Curly W Live from the Booth is presented by Geico. GEICO makes it easy to save on car insurance and homeowner's insurance. Visit GEICO.com and see how much you can save. GEICO, proud partner of the Washington Nationals. And recently, we had the chance to hold a question and answer Zoom call with some of our national season plan holders. There were some great questions, and we wanted to share some of our favorites with you. First question, and it's for both of you. Uh, what were you guys feeling uh, during this time leading up to game seven? And I'll let you guys take it from here. Oh, my goodness. Uh, there was so much emotion uh, through to get to that point, game seven of the World Series. But uh, Dave and I have discussed this a, a few times. We were amazingly calm at that point. Uh, we knew the season was going to end several hours after that game started. Someone was going to be the world champs, but we had a good feeling just based on how the Nationals had played and come from behind so many times throughout the postseason. And you had Max Scherzer for game seven, hoping and that uh, he was, as he said he was, as close to 100% as he could be. And that's a pretty good feeling. And the way the Nationals, again, had played from behind so many times uh, to get to that point after losing all three games at home and then winning game six. You knew one game, anything could happen, but everything seemed to be happening uh, in, in, in different way for the Nationals in this postseason than ever before. Yeah, for some reason, I was less nervous for that game than maybe others, like the, the wild card game or game five against the Dodgers. I don't know if it's just the, a confidence that I felt like they had a great chance to win because of how well they had played in Houston. Or maybe it was just a fact that, you know, hey, enjoying what we were about to see, the fact that we were going to get to finally call the first game seven in Nationals history. We'd been in some game fives, but never a game seven. And one way or another, the season was going to end that night. Normally, when you're in that deciding game scenario, as we have been in the past, well, you're hoping to win so that you can you can move on to the next round and you're packed for the next city. You knew one way or another the season was going to end and potentially in three hours, someone was going to be a champion and hopefully that was going to be the Nationals. So I, I felt pretty calm. I think I was in my normal pregame routine. I think I was eating about 30 minutes before our airtime, which is, uh, you know, 60 minutes before the game. I had a, a normal, I just, everything was kind of normal. Like it was another day, even though it wasn't going to be another day. And the World Series was very different for us in terms of mechanics of the of the broadcast because uh, one of the reasons that you're allowed to do local broadcast for the World Series is because you get to ca- you have to carry all of ESPN's commercials and live reads. 
in addition to live reads and commercials that we had for the Nationals and for our flagship uh, 106.7 The Fan and our Nationals radio network. So uh, what seemed like an amazing log jam leading up to the World Series, we had mastered by that point because it was kind of a scramble going into the series. But by the seventh game, you you had done this. We we had it down and uh, amazingly made it sound like it was an uncluttered broadcast, even though it was very cluttered with live reads. And we didn't want any of that to get in the way of the game or get in the way of our concentration on the game but you know the the meaning of the game and just the fact that the we were there you know pinch yourself you're doing game seven of the world series it all kind of took care of itself yeah i mean i I was prepared i had my my clinch gear in the back of the booth the same (laughs) costume that i wore every time the nationals had a chance to clinch and so we we were ready to go and and unfortunately we got to to put on that gear and and uh, I think we were on the air for probably two, two and a half hours after the, the final mm-hmm. out, just uh, interviewing and, and kind of reviewing what happened. You know, it's kind of crazy, Dave, when you when you think about it. People will, may or may not ever ask us this question, but by the time we got to Game 7 of the World Series, we were clinch celebration party veterans. You know, we, we thought about that in years past where you had one shot uh, to win a series and, and you know, we, we'd use that gear to get drenched for uh, clinching postseason berths, but never for winning anything in the postseason. So there was clinching a postseason spot. There was clinching home field advantage for the wild card. There was winning the wild card, winning the division series, winning the championship series at home, which was tremendous. And then, of course, uh, winning the World Series. Uh, and you're right. I had the same clinch gear, the the separate shoes, different uh, – I, I had, basically as it was, you know, a different set of clothes for after the clinch. I just wore uh, – wore what I wore during the game and it was designed in these days where everything is microfiber and it can get wet and uh, be rejuvenated. I, I just said the heck with it on to the next thing, change a belt, change to some waterproof shoes and go from there. Let's open it up. Let's hear what folks have to uh, have to ask us. Absolutely. Yeah. We had a question from Mark Simmons and Mark asked, and this is for both of you, Charlie and Dave. Mm-hmm. What do you think was the turning point of the season, which triggered the rise? You know, was there a certain game uh, that you think was that turning point? Wow. You'd have to go back to, you know, 19 and 31, and they started to play better in June. Uh, I think that, you know, we talked about if they were going to make a run to get back toward 500 by the All-Star break, Dave, we thought it was important to clean up on some of those bottom feeders that were on the schedule in June uh, in the American League Central playing Kansas City, playing Detroit. Uh, They had a bunch of games with the Marlins, and you felt like they had to win those games. If, if they did, then you knew the schedule was going to get tougher as they got toward and after the All-Star break. But if they could make up some ground, get back to 500, because you and I always say, don't think about postseason unless you see 500 or beyond. And for a while there, that, that was a long road to get back to. But if you think about it now, from where they were in late May to get back to 500 when they did, they did it in a big-time hurry. The beauty of hindsight is when they were 19 and 31, win number 20 was actually a come-from-behind win. Soto hit a big home run against the Marlins in the eighth inning. But if there was one game with the benefit of hindsight that I look back on, it was the game in San Diego where they hit the four home runs in a row. Uh, Strasburg had pitched a great game, but it looked like he was going to get the loss. They were down two to one going to the eighth inning facing our old buddy, Craig Stammen. They had scored one run in against Stammen since he left the nationals one run and they hit four home runs. Stammen gave up four home runs in 2018, the whole (laughs) season. And he gave up four home runs in a span of like seven or eight pitches and they were dancing in the dugout. And that was kind of the first, you know, Strasburg, you know, kind of bear hug there. and, And he was showing emotion, so I look at that game as kind of a real turning point that 
hey, something special is going on with this group. And I felt like, and we've talked about this a lot, when they were already playing better and you knew they had a good chance for a shot of the postseason, when you get to September and you're down against the Mets, uh, after they score five runs at the top of the ninth inning, you're down 10 to four and you score seven runs on seven hits and win that game with the Suzuki walk-off three-run homer in the bottom of the ninth inning. Not only then do you think they're going to make the postseason, but that if they make the postseason, they have a chance to do something special. And of course they did. Alex, next question is from Justin Thompson. So he asked, with so many incredible moments this season, what were your, both Dave and Charlie, what were both your favorite moments that might be outside of fans' memories? So maybe not the postseason big hits or the, the World Series, if you guys could touch on that. Well, the Suzuki home run and coming behind and win that game, that's not only one of the favorite moments of 2019, that's that's an all-timer in Nationals history. That, that's That's got to be in your top five or ten uh, wins, certainly the win of the regular season, I thought, for 2019. Yeah, I mean, and for me, just uh, getting to call the Kendrick home run, the Grand Slam in L.A., I mean, that one is going to be tough to top anywhere, although he tried to do it, hitting the foul pole in Game 7. But to finally get over the hump and win a series was was really special. Uh, when I think back of, of moments in and around the season, you know, obviously, I, I think the, th- this group just had a special camaraderie about it. And one of the cool things about this whole season was what just happened like a week ago. I mean, with the with the Zoom call that those guys had, that kind of it pulled the curtain back a little bit on what it was like in that clubhouse every day for you folks to see what it was like and how much those guys loved playing with each other and played for each other. Uh, it, it was really a, a special group to be around. And the fact that they won a championship allows this team to to get together 10 years from now for the reunion, 20 years from now from the, for another reunion. And they'll get together in person next time in, in 10 years and in, in 20 years. And they'll tell the same stories and laugh at the same jokes. And it'll be like not a day went by when they, when they haven't seen each other for 10 years in some cases. So I'm glad that this group is going to be linked together uh, because they were a lot of fun to be around. And, and uh, obviously, I, I think they're missing, uh, the, missing being around each other right now. Yeah, that, that's the part that for them, the, the, the last part of your celebration of your championship season, as Zim said during the Zoom call, is, is to get together on opening day and you, you celebrated with your fans who, of course, couldn't be there for Game 7. They were there for the parade. Parade was a great memory, too. That's one of the all-timers. Uh, but to be there for the raising that championship banner and seeing the players get their World Series rings for any fan of a team or for us as broadcasters, those are moments you never forget. And while I talked about the Suzuki home run being the win of last year and one of the great Great moments the regular season, of course, uh, winning each series at home and uh, getting to see them. That final pitch from Daniel Hudson to uh, wrap up Game 7 of the World Series is, is a moment you'd never forget for the rest of your life. I'll never forget taking that left turn down Constitution, uh, riding in the car in the parade. It was kind of like that feeling when you're on the roller coaster and you're going up, 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 and all of a sudden you crest and you start going down at full speed. It was just <laughs> an incredible rush of emotion seeing the amount of people lining both sides of constitution during that parade that's one that i mean we we see you know you can get you watch baseball and you see things happen a bit that's a that's an experience i've never had before or <laughs> figure not to have again maybe we'll have it again in 2020 or 2021 but that just that moment was uh, was truly surreal and truly special you know when you look down constitution after making the turn and then after we get to the end of the parade and you have the rally and the ceremony are up on the stage and we're looking back up constitution and we just can't see the end of where people were. It just, <laughs> it just continued on and on and on. Uh, we could not see the end of the line of people who were there. 
It was truly unbelievable. The next question is from uh, Tracy Lustig. Uh, Tracy understands the tremendous amount of work that you guys do preparing for the regular season games. Uh, her question was, how much extra work did you have to put in for the 2019 you know, NLDS, NLCS, and World Series? You know, it's interesting, uh, especially the, probably the most work is when you get to the Astros who you, who you didn't get to play. Uh, but the teams that you played during the regular season, you, you've seen uh, in the National League. And so Milwaukee, we had played in August. The Dodgers, you had, you know, two series against them. And, of course, the Cardinals, we know that team very, very well. So probably you spend the most time putting the work uh, against the Astros uh, because you didn't see them necessarily in the regular season last year but you know what Dave we had lots of time with those days off in the postseason to be prepared and once you prepared for that series uh, the the preparation level certainly goes down compared to every few days playing a new team in the regular season that maybe you haven't seen for weeks or months or in the case of interleague play three years sometimes longer. Yeah, we prepare a lot of material background information on on the opposing team just in case you need to to fill time. In the postseason, that's really that doesn't happen a lot because you're you know, you're, you're focused on the game and it's not like, you know, sometimes you get, uh, we've had, we've done a lot of them in our time. You get those blowout games in, in July and you've got to fill some time and you want to have some, some stories and some knowledge and some information, you know, they, they're in those situations, you're focused on the game. So in a way you almost have to do less preparation uh, for the postseason. The game on the field takes care of itself. Yeah, I would agree with that. The next question was, what was your favorite play to call during the world series? Well, I'm going to take the uh, the doink off the foul pole. That's a that's a sound that will uh, will live in in Nationals lore. So, calling the Kendrick home run uh, for me in the seventh inning, turning a, a two to one deficit into a three to two lead, the ultimate World Series winning hit, and that's one that can potentially be for a play-by-play guy, a really hard call considering where the ball is hit. And the one call you don't want to mess up is calling something a home run that's not or calling something that's not a home run a home run. And that that ball was pretty dangerous down the line. Is it going to be fair? Is it going to be high enough? Is the fan going to reach over and touch it? Uh, is the umpire going to be quick to make the call to, to break the rhythm of the call you're trying to make? But fortunately, when the ball hit the foul pole, it took all the drama out of it and, uh, you know, kind of nailed the call the, the best that I could and, uh, you know, just tried to encapsulate what it meant for Howie, the fact that he had delivered the big home run against the Dodgers and that it was his signature moment. And so I went back to, to what I said in L.A., you know, do you believe it? But this is do you believe it part two because Kendrick has done it again. Yeah, I thought that's, that's a really hard call. You're right, Dave. And, you know, the one thing I thought helped was the body language reaction of the right fielder. Reddick because he he told you it was a home run that it hit the foul pole when the ball landed on the field because he didn't re- he didn't chase the ball and of course it's hard when the ball doesn't go out of play but in that case when it's down the line it's difficult to see fair or foul it helps you to hit the foul pole because either side of the pole uh, you hope it hits the either the the screen attached to the pole if it goes to the left it's a harder call but a lot of times when it's on the foul side you can't tell if it grazes the pole it becomes a very hard call even for the umpire so yeah that that's a really hard call especially with a slice off a, of a right-handed hitter to hit that pitch down the right field line for for a home run like that it was a terrific call for me there there were so many calls during the postseason but of course during the world series the, you know anticipation when when Altuve struck out on three pitches and it's two out on the bottom of the ninth inning and you know everything 
in your in our time as broadcasters together, Dave, uh, that's about the time where you had the the arms going, and and you're ready to change your <laughs> yes, shoes there. To get out. Someone of the caught booth. that on video somehow. I mean, we we had like nine, 19 people in our booth. We were not socially distant in our in our we're not properly social distancing in our booth in October. I think we had about. 18 people in there. Bob Carpenter hung out with us there. Uh, Grant Paulson and Danny Ruye from the flagship station. Some of the Nats folks who, who gave us the, the great, um, you know, video uh, footage. They were in there. So it was a little crowded. And we had the happened to have the camera rolling when that happened. Oh, well. We had the best seats in the house. So that's. But the thing, the thing that, that you, you bring that up, the reason why I kind of did the, did it close down is immediately to my left is an open glass window mm-hmm. with all the right, the entire writer's press boxes there. So the, the last thing you want to do is, is stand up and throw your arms up and have the entire writer's press box looking like, what an idiot. What is he doing? That's so unprofessional. So I, I kind of went down there. I had have, I have like some stats taped up on the wall. So I was hiding below my stats mm-hmm. so that none of the writers could see what I was doing. So there, there's the explanation. You know, when the Nationals got the final out of the National League Championship Series, we were caught on camera as well. But really, we're at the highest point of Nationals Park. There's not many people who, who are looking in to see us at that moment. But you're yeah, right. There was, Houston, no, there was no good year blimp to, to capture. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no one can in see there, us. In Houston, you do that. You're jumping up and down or doing so. Everybody's going to turn away from the field because they're distracted by the sudden movement. You know, but, it's, it's funny. Uh, and I know I, I'm interrupting your answer, but this is another little inside story. Some, there was a writer who tweeted something. When Para came up to pinch hit in game two, I, I don't know. I, you were doing the play-by-play, and I motioned to you that Parra, because Parra was kind of a late substitution, and I did, I did this. I gave you the baby shark to indicate that Parra was the pinch hitter, and someone tweeted in the writer's press box that even the announcers do the, do the baby shark when, when Parra comes up. Now, we did do it at home, but I've right. never, I had never did the baby shark on the road. But I was doing it to signal the pinch hitter right. to you just to make sure that you had it. And someone thought I was doing the baby shark in Houston when, when Para came up to the plate. That's pretty funny. But again, you know, when it was, Altuve struck out on three pitches, the, it, reality was striking. You could hear a pin drop at Minute Maid Park, one out away from winning the World Series with a four-run lead. Uh, as kind of a rush through my body at that point. And then everything that you thought about leading up to that moment starts running through your mind. You still have to describe what's going to go on for that, that final batter. And eventually Hudson uh, striking out Michael Brantley to wrap it up. Since we were talking about Para, uh, Steve and Susan, uh, their question is, do you think the dugout dancing will continue without Para on the team next year? <laughs> That's an interesting question. I mean, when I, when we look at the, the 2020, you know, version of the nationals, how, you know, what, what sort of personality is this team going to take? I mean, it, it seems like it's still you know, a real good group. And I think some of the additions, Eric Thames seems to have a real good personality and, and Castro seems to fit in pretty well. So, I mean, that was very organic the way it happened and you don't want it to be forced. So, uh, I'll be interested to see how it plays out. I think you'll probably have some of that. I mean, when, when Howie hits his first home run of the year, I think he and Eaton are going to be barreling down the highway and, and vice versa when Eaton hits his first home run of the year. So I, I think it's, it's probably still going to be a part of it. I mean, obviously, Parra will be uh, dearly missed in that regard, but uh, there, there are a lot of folks there still have, who have great personality and will play the game with that joy. Yeah, you never know who could be that next emotional leader uh, in that regard. 
The next question is from Kathy Toto. Uh, Kathy asked, do you think that having the roof closed for all of the games in Houston was an advantage for the Nationals? You know, I've been, I can't remember the last time we had a game there to where uh, the roof was open, whether that affects fly to the ball or anything like that. So I, I know the Astros always seem to, in the postseason, want the roof to be closed. And really, at that point of the, the time of the year, weather-wise, you could have played with the roof open. And, I, you know, I, I don't think MLB got in the way of that. The Astros seemed to want to close maybe for the noise factor. Absolutely. That was in their favor. Uh, but, I, you know, I, I don't think it favored one team or another. That's that's a hitter's park, I think, whether the roof is open or the roof is closed. I think the one thing, and I don't know that the roof played a factor either way, but in a way, the Nationals were were better served playing in the American League Park because, because it got an extra bat in the lineup. I mean, if you look at their performance in the series, would they score three runs? in the home games you'd have you had to take a bat out of the lineup you mm-hmm. know Davey had such a deep lineup he could put you know Cabrera at the DH if he wanted or he could put Kendrick at the DH if he wanted he he didn't have to make a decision as to who would sit and I think in a way you know a lot of National League teams maybe aren't built that way relative to the American League counterparts but the Nationals uh, their their lineup was stacked in an American League ballpark so in a way playing on the road with the DH I think helped their offense and the numbers bore that out. And I think they would be a team in 2020 that would be the same way because when you're a team that's built with a with a deep bench and when you're looking at the possibility, say, if Keyboom is playing third and you have Cabrera and then you have Castro, your second baseman, and Kendrick and Zimmerman and Thames, the, these are all guys who could play on a lot of teams every day, but you have some players advanced years in their career who are not going to play every day. But certainly when they – go play an American League team in American League Park with a DH, they're not going to be hurt by that at all because they've got these players who will be key pinch hitters when they're not playing or double switches in games in the National League. So you pop one of them right in there as a DH. The next question is from Diego. He wants to know what the plane flight home from the World Series was like. How was it stepping off the plane? Well, Ryan, we were on the plane with you. There were two planes. Two planes. And so players and family were on one plane. We did go with them to Houston before game six, uh, but it was a little crowded. So the, the second plane wasn't as crowded. So we got to be on the second plane with our wives and, and other staff members. But our plane actually, uh, by design, landed first. And then we walked to be around the players' plane so that when they got off, we were, the rece- we were part of the reception group along with uh, airport workers and police and whatnot. And we had the, the, the fire engines shooting uh, water over the planes as we uh, approached uh, the spot on the tarmac where the planes would park uh, out at Dulles Airport. And so it was quite a sight to watch them emerge from the plane and come down the steps with a trophy and then interact with all the people on the, on the, on the tarmac. And then, of course, arriving back at Nationals Park, Dave, with people outside waiting for the club. That was – I mean, these are all other uh, experiences that maybe – get a little bit lost when you think about the games and the celebrations after the series win and the parade, but these were pretty special moments as well. Yeah. Cause, cause it was all happening for the first time. And, and I got some pretty good pictures. I'm sure as you did when, when Zim came off the plane holding the trophy aloft. So that that's a goosebump moment. Next question is we know that championship teams sometimes can experience letdowns the following year. How do championship team broadcasters 
avoid letdowns the following year. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> we, we, we show up every day. My, my, my joke was with, with Charlie when the team was, was 19 and 31, and we're saying, man, what are we going to do to fill the last 110 games? You know, so, uh, once in a while, we'd have to give each other a pep talk, and I'd say, you know what? I said, you're, you're a first-place broadcaster. The team might be in fourth place, but you're a first-place broadcaster. So whether the team is in first place or last place, we, we have a job to do, and, and we're going to broadcast that day's game. Uh, and try to make it interesting and entertaining and informative all in one, whether it's a, a great pitcher's duel, a, a slugfest, or a snoozer. So you know, they're, they're, all, the, all the games are different, and uh, we'll be there for the good ones and the bad ones. We used to have this thing that we would say uh, back when you came on board in 2006, Dave, and, uh, you know, team was not as good in 06 as it was in 05, and, and 07 wasn't as good as 06 and 08 and 09 and so on. We would say, okay, you know, uh, don't look at the standings. We're doing the game of the day. Like prepare like we're we're doing that game. Basically, we were trying to go one and zero. Even back then, we didn't say it that way, but we were trying to go one and zero as broadcasters with a team that wasn't competitive and hope that we could have a good storyline. Even even in 06, when they weren't very good, you had Soriano who was having a. a a record-setting year, a 40-40-40 player that year. And so he was he was the exciting part of the season. And then, of course, when the young players started to come along, that became the focus uh, with the draft picks and the team was able to turn. But even last year when the team was at 19 and 31, it's only, we looked at each other, Dave, and said, I, I hope we don't have to put on our 2007 hat here. <laughs> but we, we're on. Let's not think too far ahead. Let's just do this game today as best we can. And, you know, the storyline will we'll play out. We'll, we'll set it up, and we'll see what happens. So, again, we didn't call it that, but we were trying to go 1-0 and every day. One of our younger fans on the call here, uh, seven-year-old Aaron, has a question for both of you. Uh, who is your favorite baseball player of all time? I'll let you go first, Dave. I got to think about that. Well, growing up, Aaron, when I was your age, my favorite player was a, a guy named Jim Rice. I was a Red Sox fan growing up. And uh, when I was seven years old, he won the MVP in the American League in 1978. He ultimately made it to the Hall of Fame, uh, I believe, on his last year of eligibility. So for me, growing up, that was the that was the guy. And it's funny, I, I've met you know so many uh, you know, great, you know, great players in, in all different sports in, in my career. And in, and in particular in baseball, I've never met Jim Rice. I might be, might be a little starstruck if I was, I mean, it was, it was Jim Rice in, in basketball and baseball, Larry Bird in basketball was my guy, never met Larry either. So those were, those are my two, but Jim Rice in baseball was my all time favorite. Uh, as far as present day, I mean, it, it's tough to top Max Scherzer. I mean, you're, you're watching day in and day out, every fifth day, a Hall of Famer in his prime wearing a curly W on his hat. And he will go into Cooperstown with a curly W on his hat. So uh, it, it's really special to watch him. And he's my favorite now. You know, when I was growing up uh, in New York, Tom Seaver was winning Cy Young Awards, a 300-game winner in his career. And so I would say as a youngster uh, – his talent as a pitcher on the team that I grew up watching, he was probably my favorite player growing up. And then I have different eras uh, as an adult of players that I, that I liked through the years, but because I've been with the Nationals since day one, you know, Ryan Zimmerman is one of my favorite players of all time because he was the first draft pick. He's been here all, all of this time. We've kind of been on, on a similar path uh, during the celebration after they beat the Cardinals uh, for the National League Championship Series. We were over at the Salt Line across the street from Nationals Park and it was 
probably overcrowded in the room that we were in with a party. And we kind of backed into each other, turned around and looked at each other. And I said, 15 years. And he said, mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's common, common thread like there, but you know, I got to agree with you with the, you know, Max Scherzer, you are watching a hall of fame pitcher every time he goes out there and you know, who knows uh, in his next couple of years with the Nats, what are the great heights he can take them to certainly for him individually, but he's always thinking what it means as a team. And uh, you know, it was great to see a guy that competitive win a world series. So we have another question from a seven-year-old as well. This is uh, Vincent's son. Uh, wanted to ask his favorite player is Juan Soto, by the way, and he wanted to ask both of you guys, what player does Soto remind you of at his current age? No one. <laughs> I don't have anyone that he reminds me of because I can't remember a player with his unique style uh, and his ability at at his age. Uh, you know, think about I'll. I'll Pulling out of a hat for you, Dave, you know, when Freddie Lynn broke in with the Red Sox, rookie of the year and what MVP, how old was he? Well, in 75, I, I don't know. I don't, he was not 20. He was a little was bit not, older, right? Yeah, he was a little bit older. Robin Yount. He had, he had come through the minor leagues. Robin Yount was really young coming into the big leagues. I mean, you see all the lists that Soto is on for the 19-year-olds and then the 20-year-olds. It's a very short list because so few guys are actually in, in the major leagues at that point. And I, I, I caught the uh, – David Ortiz had a comment here this offseason about just the, the poise that he plays with. And, and Ortiz you know, said it took him about seven years in the league to, to kind of carry that swagger and, and poise out in the field. And you just – you watch him as a hitter – uh, you, you, you want to compare him to a veteran player. You, you compare him to, to some of the great hitters that you've seen, not just of any, uh, not just of a young age, but of, of any age because of the way he controls the strike zone and, and just the, the flair that he plays the game with. No question. No question. Uh, I, it's really hard to compare him to anyone that you and I have seen and broadcast to this point of our careers. The next question is from Rob Huey. Uh, Rob wanted to know for both of you guys, what is your favorite ballpark to visit? Well, it's, you know, it, it, I always answer this in a few different ways. The, the, the best ballpark to visit that we visit in the National League is Wrigley Field because of the tradition and how long it's been around when you think of the, the, the many memories that have been there. But it's a horrible place to work because uh, you, you're literally right on top of each other and there's no place to move. I mean, uh, some of the great places to, to um, at least for the um, aesthetics of it, are San Francisco with a great view of, uh, of, the, of the bay. And obviously Pittsburgh has a great skyline. Uh, so, so those are pretty cool places to be. Uh, but, but I like to just being at the old ballparks, you know, Wrigley Field, the occasional time we get to go to, to Fenway just because of the tradition of it. Not necessarily great places to work, but, but just to enjoy the, the smell of those ballparks. They smell like old ballparks. The, the, the grease when they, when they fire up the grills, that's what it smells like when you walk into Wrigley Field off the bus two, two three hours before the game. It's a smell unlike any other smell that you get walking into the new ballparks. So I always enjoy the, the older venues. Yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. Uh, I like Dodger Stadium. It's kind of a mix of the of the old, old and, and somewhat new. Uh, and I know they were doing a lot of work at Dodger Stadium. But to me, that there's just there's a mystique about that ballpark. Um, great sight line, uh, great crowd level noise there. Uh, that's one of my favorites. Philadelphia, as much as 
Nobody would want to mention Philadelphia. We like it for the press box food. Uh, and for the ice cream. Yes, they, they have some different things and, and a pretty good vantage point to watch the game. So like you said at the start of uh, answering this question, we'd like certain ballparks for certain reasons. Uh, we were scheduled to go to Anaheim this year. That's another great sightline bar, ballpark and always great weather. We would have gotten to see Anthony Rendon too. So uh, that would have been fun. Seattle's uh, awesome. Yes, yeah, Seattle's Seattle. a great park. Seattle has always been one of my favorites for my time broadcasting with Tampa Bay in the American League. When they moved into uh, Safeco Field, tremendous. It's it, it's a, a they have a roof, but it slides over, and it's very similar in design to Houston. Only there's no glass, and it remains open. So you always have an outside feel. Even when the roof slides over, it's almost like a carport instead of a, a, a roof that encloses the entire stadium. They also have the best coffee anywhere in uh, in Major League Baseball at Safe. Uh, I'm upset we're not going to get to see the new ballpark this year in Texas, in Arlington. Um, well, you never know. I, never know. That's true. Uh, <laughs> I, I've actually never done a game from Arlington because the last time the Nationals played the Rangers in Texas was 2005. Every ensuing series – I think in 08, 14, and 17 have all three been at Nationals Park. I never understood now, that. I mean, uh, we didn't. I don't know. The same thing Something happened. about with, being there. Some, same thing happened with, with Oakland, right, for, for a long, long time. The yeah, Oakland is not. They, they played at RFK in 05. They've not been to Nationals Park, and they are scheduled to be at Nationals Park in 2020. So Tom would like you guys to describe the awesome transformation that this franchise has gone through from 2005 to present. You guys could touch on that. Well, that's a book we could write. <laughs> that's, that's a long Are you working on that one here uh, in quarantine. Is that what you're doing? Um, maybe not necessarily that book, but uh, somebody already wrote, wrote the book of this year. And, uh, you know, and, and Barry Sverluga wrote the 05 book. So you just got to right. fill in the gaps. We need something uh, in between or maybe before leading up to, but uh, you know, certainly 05 we talk about um, when we're, when we look at great games in Nationals history, one of the great moments, 2005 is one of the best things I've ever seen as a broadcaster. That first game back in D.C. in uh, April 14th of 2005 at RFK Stadium, seeing people's reaction coming into the ballpark, seeing the field, seeing a team on the field, taking batting practice in a ballpark that was made to look as it did when the Senators played their final game there in 1971. And just the, the reaction of the city to getting baseball back and what it was like that entire first half of the year, the team outplayed played any expectations with the 20 and 6 June and were 19 games over 500 and were the, the talk of sports nationally. For those MLB Network, they were the lead story on SportsCenter every night when they won 10 games in a row in the first half of June. It was simply unbelievable. So you, you had that year where they ended up playing 19 games under 500 uh, in the second half of the year and ended up being a last place team with a 500 record. How often do you ever see that, Dave? 81 and 81 and they were fifth and last place and nobody was none too really upset about it they made a run they were in the hunt for the wild card into into early uh september till about the 10th 12th of september when they kind of faded away and uh ended up being the last place team in the division and they wouldn't see that 500 mark again for a long long time going through eventually what was a rebuild that they really didn't have at the start because they were a team of an inherited expos and free agents and whoever jim bowden could find that he could fit in uh to the salary structure of the expos becoming the nationals in 2005 when they were still owned by major league baseball and the other 29 clubs uh until the learners were 
granted uh, ownership of the club. That that scenario, those those nationals coming from Montreal, becoming the nationals is is an era unto itself until the team had local ownership and turned the corner and uh, went through the tough losing years and hundred lost seasons to earn the draft picks at the top of uh, the heap in Steven Strasburg and Bryce Harper. Yeah, and when, when the team came in 2005, the star of the team was the manager, Frank Robinson. I mean, before the Nationals came into existence, folks around D.C. probably couldn't have named three Montreal Expos who were coming to be Nationals. And then they had a star in Soriano in 06. But really, think about how the world changed for the Nationals when the Seattle Mariners won the last three games of the 2008 season and the Nationals fell into the number one draft pick. Ended up with Steven Strasburg. And when, when Strasburg made his debut, uh, I mean, that was, that was really a turning point for this franchise when they became relevant and when they had star power. And then you added Harper to that. And ultimately, you'd add Scherzer and uh, Rendon. And, and, the, and obviously, you had uh, star caliber players. I mean, they, their farm system back then when Mike Rizzo inherited it when he was hired from Arizona was 31st out of 30 teams. And he had, a, he had a lot of building to do. And they were the 30th team out of 30 in 2008 and 2009, and finally in 2019, they were number one out of 30. So it was a long journey to get from 30 to one. Let's not forget this guy right here, Ryan Zimmerman, as that draft pick in 05 and a, a gold glove winner early in his career. Really, their first young star player that you thought was going to be the guy to be with this team for as long as he has been. The future of the team and the face of the Nationals as a young player replacing Vinny, Vinny Castilla as the third baseman in their second season. And, of course, uh, a dramatic opening of Nationals Park when Stan Kasten was able to convince the commissioner to let the Nationals play one game on a Sunday night, not a series, one game that was moved to start ahead of everybody else. And, of course, that dramatic opening of Nationals Park with his home run uh, walk-off uh, over the Braves. So, uh, you know, uh, those were early memories that were great for this franchise. And, and eventually – uh, we saw this team improve tremendously during the 2011 season, maybe a little bit of, ahead of schedule. And then, of course, really took off in 2012. The next question is from Mark Gerson. Uh, Mark asked, do you have any favorite mementos or memorabilia from the World Series? You know, I'm still working on that. Um, I think uh, we have some lineup cards that are waiting for us, Dave, when we get to D.C. For, usually I end up with a ball from, from somewhere in the postseason. Uh, didn't happen this time, but uh, those are things that maybe we can still get a hold of. Um, but I think as far as mementos from the postseason, right now um, – I have this framed artist rendering of the World Series trophy that has all of the words to the last pitch, last out call of the World Series is uh, my favorite thing so far. I'm big on framing, you know, newspaper photos, headlines with copies of the of my score sheet. So I may do a game seven. Haven't done it yet, but right now I've got I've got this autographed Paul Menhart baseball he signed a 2019 world series champions paul menhart number 55 jags a true friend and the story of this ball is when the nationals were down two games to one against the dodgers in game four i was down in the field for batting practice you know prior to the game and i saw paul wanted to ask him some questions and he just he flipped me a, a ball he said here take this ball and he, he, he showed it to me, and he said, what you want to do is you want to snap your fingers, snap the ball up in the air, and catch it. And he said, You're gonna, that's how you throw your curveball. You want to snap your curveball. And so he had me do it a couple of times, snap the curveball, and he said, you know, keep the ball and work on it. And so I took the ball up to the booth in game four, and the Nationals won game four. So I put the ball in my bag, and I was walking down the aisle of the plane, going back to L.A., and I, I 
showed him I was flipping the curveball, and then the balls, you know, we go to LA, Nationals win game five, the ball goes to St. Louis, the ball goes to Houston. And so after the World Series was over, I had Paul sign the ball because when they were facing elimination down two to one, that ball turned it, everything around. Wow, that's my that's, superstition. That's what I'm going with. Well, what a great meaning for that ball and a story that goes with it when everybody asks, well, who's that signed that ball? What is, why do you have that ball? What does that mean? That's tremendous. And maybe I could throw a curveball. I don't know. Yeah. A lot of the other stuff I had framed, you know, to frame like you have the first front pages of the uh, Washington Post sports sections. I have a poster blow up of the Sports Illustrated cover, uh, the, the, the magazine over there, but the poster and some of the other stuff I have unfortunately is in DC. <laughs> I'm well, not I've got, right I've got I'm sure, you know, these things cost a, a pretty good amount of money to get framed. Scherzer's you know, gone into my wallet a couple of times. Cause I've got, I've got both of his no hitters and I've got his 20 strikeout game and he signed the score sheets and I have the Jordan I, Zimmerman no hitter. So I, I have that on, too. on my wall, which is kind of around the corner here. I've got the, the Zimmerman no hitter, the two Scherzer no hitters and the Scherzer 20 strikeout game. And I've got to make room for game seven. Right. But uh, I'm hoping to get the game seven lineup cards that we can frame when we get to D.C. because I'm told they have them for us. Next question is from John Kinsman. John wanted to know, in the few weeks uh, that you guys were able to observe the players in spring training, you know, what do you want to share with us? Who looked, who looked really, really strong that we can be excited about? Well, I never give a whole lot of credence to, to spring training, especially with veteran teams. As long as everybody is healthy, I think veteran players are just trying to make sure they get their work in, get their swings in, get their timing down. By the last week, 10 days of spring training for hitters and for pitchers, you know, they've been working since pitchers and catchers report, building up their stamina, working on their arsenal, and uh, making sure they are healthy, especially when you have a veteran staff. So, I mean, the story of spring training for the Nationals this year was – Carter Keyboom going to be ready to be the starting third baseman when the season opened? And if not, would it be as Jubal Cabrera or would Starlin Castro slide over there and, and be the everyday third baseman until Keyboom is ready? And would that mean that Cabrera and Kendrick would share second base? To me, those were the questions of spring training and maybe uh, depending on if Keyboom would earn that starting spot and if not went to the minor leagues did that open a spot for somebody else as a position player because you knew with the expanded rosters going to 26 that you were going to have 13 pitchers and a chance to have 13 position players it was yeah it was a fairly low drama spring training it was kind of oh, you're in countdown mode just let's get get through get everybody healthy get the season starting now we don't know whether this is you know if, if and when you can get things going if it's going to be a very very quick spring training uh spring training 2.0 and and try to get everybody ready. I mean, every team's going to be dealing with issues, trying to keep players healthy, get pitchers stretched out. So it's going to be tough to really predict uh, what the, the season will look like and how it will unfold based on that. We do have time for one more question. Uh, and that question will come from Alan Perkins. Alan asked both of you guys, you're not used to being home in April, obviously. How are things different for you and your families? Well, for one, um, I didn't make it back to D.C. because I was in between trips from my Florida home back to West Palm Beach when everything uh, was was halted. And so uh, we've been in this holding pattern here. I haven't been here at this home at this point of the year in uh, oh, since about 2004. So it's, it's really different for me. I mean, I'm enjoying extra time with my wife and my younger son. Uh, we've got the good weather here we've had for a while. And we're doing some things that we, that normally, you know, the honey-do list has stretched from the winter into 
almost May now, where normally I would have said, oh, we didn't get that done. That'll be next winter. So now we're still, we're, we're doing some cleaning out cabinets and closets and rearranging the garage. But, uh, you know, pretty soon here, Dave, I'm going to revert back to doing preparation on teams that the Nationals are going to play. And uh, you mentioned the possibility of a book idea I've been toying with for a long time, but it, it just didn't, didn't feel right to me during this time when I can spend more time with my family to isolate myself to do something like that. But um, eventually it may come to that. <laughs> We're getting along pretty well here. Um, uh, my, my son is home from college doing online school. My daughter's doing online high school. Her softball season's been canceled, but we, we practice every day. Uh, she takes 100 swings into the net. Then we go out and do fielding. My son has dropped a couple of times the old Field of Dreams line, Dad, do you want to have a catch? And you know, we, we air it out pretty good. We do some long tossing. So if this goes on much longer, I may need to visit Dr. Andrews. Maybe a little TJ coming on. I've been airing it out pretty good when I shouldn't be doing that because I haven't done it in so long. So You're going to have to start throwing left-handed. Yeah, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a good BP pitcher. I can't throw every day. I don't, I don't have a rubber arm. I don't bounce back. Uh, the, the big thing was... Uh, my wife had been looking at my head like a science experiment for about two weeks. She ordered clippers, uh, clipper guards in the mail, and uh, finally gave me the, the haircut about a week ago. And it was not the best haircut I've ever had, but it was not the worst haircut I ever had. And you know the story of the worst haircut, Charlie, because it was in spring training, our first spring in Vieira. And Vieira was not really developed at that point like it was by the time the Nationals left. There was no place to get a men's haircut. There was like one salon that wanted to charge like 60 bucks and I walked out of there. And so I ended up getting my haircut in 2006. He's going to say it. At the Walmart. <laughs> the Walmart had haircuts. There you go. My wife gave a better haircut than the Walmart did. She That's didn't go short enough. It's about to going to need another haircut another week. <laughs> I have not I've gone there yet. I'm, I'm getting a little lengthy here. Holding out. I'm holding out thinking that my wife's got somebody that when the time is right and they say we can do it, that she's going to come do all of our hair because, you know, the ladies right now at this point, I could, I could last like this. You could last, but the, the, <laughs> the ladies, I know it's driving them nuts at this point. Yeah. So I mean, this has been, uh, this has been a lot of fun, Charlie. This is kind of like what we do uh, in, in a rain delay at the ballpark. We get a chance to, to hear from the fans. We get a chance to, to take phone calls, to, to answer, uh, you know, direct message, Twitter questions or emails. And so I just wish that we could have, I mean, as much as I hate rain delays at Nationals Park, wouldn't it be great to have a rain delay at Nationals Park? That would mean we were broadcasting a exactly. game, right? We, we, all the fans would be crowded under the concourse. Uh, you know, those, those folks who, uh, who brave those things. And uh, we, we could take some phone calls and finish up a game at about uh, 1230 in the morning. And, uh, you know, just, just dreaming on that. But uh, just in closing for us, uh, thank you to all our, our full season plan holders. You've been there. Many of you since the beginning, you were there when the, the stands were bouncing at RFK and you were there through the lean years, through the thick and the thin, the thin early and now the thick. You were there for uh, when things were not so good and now they're, they're amazing and the Nationals are World Series champions. So we can't thank you enough for being part of the Nationals family. Yeah, many of you folks, uh, we've gotten to, to become friends of ours all the way back to 2005 as season plan holders, all the way back to the, the days when we used to have the players visit the ESPN zone for life, uh, lunchtime Q&As in the, uh, in the early years uh, for the Nationals. So uh, I know we, we've watched, while our kids have grown up, we've watched season plan holders who've been with the team so long since 2005. 
five, watch their kids grow up. So our lives have been paralleled and we all celebrated uh, together uh, with the Nationals World Championship win uh, last October. And uh, I know we all are just waiting uh, anxiously for the chance not only to get back to the ballpark, uh, but to be able to do the things that we love to do with the people that we love to do them with. And uh, normally, Dave, by this time of the year, you and I are spending more time together than we spend with our wives. So the, the, the calendar is definitely slanted and out of whack. And the, the one the one thing that always happens to us during the regular seasons, we're ne- you know, we what day is it? We really don't know what day it is. And now we're hearing those stories from everywhere you look. People are not sure what, is it trash? Day? I can't remember if it's the day to put out the trash or the recycling. All the days are running together. So this was great for us. This was like doing a broadcast without the game and the rain delay. You know, I feel like we're in the longest rain delay ever right now, and and hopefully the rain will stop and we'll all be back together again at the ballpark. So thanks for joining us here tonight. We really appreciate it. Maybe next time we do one of these, Dave, we can do it where people actually be able to talk to us, and it'll be like one of our rain delay shows on the radio. Yep, we had our we had our first pitch, our first question at 7.05. It's just like a, a normal game night. We we should be in Milwaukee tonight. We should be beating up on the Brewers tonight in a rematch of the wild card game. But, uh, you know, fingers crossed we'll be back on the radio doing what we love to do real soon. And you'll be there listening to us. And we thank you for being loyal listeners and loyal fans of the Washington Nationals. Thanks, guys. We hope to see you soon. We hope you've enjoyed this edition of Curly W Live from the Booth, again presented by GEICO. Follow us at nationals.com slash Live. And we'll talk to you on the next Curly W Live from the Booth.